0: Used to be one of the wanting, like your fill that. Used to be one of the wanting, like your fill that. Used to be one of the writing, wanting, like your fill. See, smile and fish talk and cheese. Thank you.
1: This is Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is Dylan Horrocks. Did I get it right? I do not even ask. Uh,
2: yeah, I guess. Dylan Horrocks. Horrocks. Yeah, it's an old, old English name, apparently.
1: Um, but you're in New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess your main um, thing you have out right now is the re-release of Hicksville with uh, an added introduction, which kind of... It's interesting because it looks back on the work and kind of adds more relevance to what you're saying within the story that's happened since then. Right. I guess so. I feel it's a kind of like a, it's an introduction but in a way it's also an afterword.
2: Yeah. I guess it was a very personal introduction. I, when um, when Chris at Drawn and Causley, Chris Oliveras, first asked me to do a new introduction for a new edition I really dithered for a while. Uh, I think I felt it felt weird to go back and revisit Hicksville, which was by then, you know, 10 years old since I'd first published it as a book. Um, and it was going back and uh, and revisiting that work after quite a long time had passed. And so I kind of, I, I really meandered around it. And then finally, one morning, I kind of woke up and lay in bed, and suddenly the the introduction just... Came into my head exactly how I would do it, because what I thought I, what I decided I would do is I'd write about why it is that I felt reluctant to do the new introduction, <laughs> for it. Um, and so it, it ended up becoming one of the most personal things I've written, really.
1: Well, after reading that, I went and read as much of the stuff online as I could find, and it really I started seeing pieces all connecting together to kind of get an idea of where you're at now mm-hmm. with cartooning, which I feel like you face a lot of stoppages.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it actually stoppages isn't it <laughs> <laughs> it's, that, it's that feeling of coming up against a wall now and then
1: it almost feels like you're creating work that wasn't you didn't feel honest to yourself about what you're creating
2: yeah i I guess I mean the key thing is that after Hexel came out, um, and Hexel was the culmination of about six years of working on a story that really evolved as it went but mm-hmm. but came very much out of me is a very very personal story um not personal in the way that the introduction is I mean the introduction's strictly autobiographical and I'm talking very much about my own life Hicksall wasn't like that it was like a very personal exploration of my uh, dreams and feelings about about comics and about uh I don't know, I guess about my relationship to art in general Um, and growing up in New Zealand, which, like if comics are at the the absolute edges and margins of the art and literary world, New Zealand is at the the margin of the geographical world and the cultural world. We've always seen ourselves as being right on the edge, Um, kind of the arse end of nowhere, really. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And so Hicksil is very much about all that, How I felt my place in the world was as a cartoonist in New Zealand, and um, and where I saw comics their place in the wider world world of art and literature. Uh, so I worked on that very personal story for about six years, and then afterwards I started getting invited to write for uh, DC and Dark Horse and some of the bigger companies. And so for about four years I was really focused on writing comics for dc first for vertigo and then for the dc superhero lines and um at first i thought that was terrific you know because i could earn reasonable money doing that and i was only writing them i didn't have to draw them so it couldn't take that much time right <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i would still be able to to write and draw my own comics on the side and so i started my new series with Drawn and quarterly atlas in about 2000 2001 and and while i was working on these dc comics but after a few years i think what i'd really learned was that i'm not the kind of cartoonist who can just sit down and write comics as a commercial arrangement i um i think even when i'm trying to do work which is basically just bashing it out um according to a set of according to a brief mm-hmm. even when i'm trying to do that i it ends up becoming a very personal process um and so when I'm writing a story that, that isn't really me, it doesn't come from me, and it, it may reflect a view of the world that I don't share, um, it does start to feel very dishonest. And I think that over a few years that really ate away at me to the point where I, I, what it feels like is I lost my voice. I lost my voice as a writer and a cartoonist um, because I was trying so hard to emulate
1: other voice that I thought I was expected to capture. I, I I I really wonder about that contrast because I mean, with something like Batgirl, you look—it seems like you're a cog and machine—and I almost wonder, like, how much do you really write? Are you basically just creating dialogue to go along with what the expectation of the whole wider Batworld story or whatever it may yeah. be?
2: Well, it varies. I mean, I. I have to say that that, uh, that the people I worked with at DC were, were great. And the, um, I really was, I suppose in practical terms, I was pretty free to explore the stories I wanted to. Um, I think, and, and you know, I have friends like, like Ed Brubaker, who, who I met when he was doing small press, mm-hmm. semi-autobiographical comics in the 90s. Um, and then I watched him kind of, you know, uh, start doing work for, I think he started with Vertigo, and then gradually made his way to the point where now he's, well, I guess he's one of Marvel's top writers now, right?
1: Yep. Oh, yeah.
2: And um, and he's, you know, he's just, he's a different kind of person who's much more able to flourish in that context. And I think that in order to flourish in that context, you need to be able to, um, uh you need to be able to stand up for yourself partly creatively you need to be able to say look this is my vision and i'm going to argue for it and um and i'm not very good at that i'm, I'm not a very <laughs> confrontational person so so i te- you know i tend to kind of second guess um what i think they want uh but the biggest problem i think really is that i don't for me that whole world of american commercial mainstream comics it's not really a familiar wor- world for me I didn't grow up reading those things, as I say in the introduction to Hexvil. I grew up reading uh, European comics like Tintin and Asterix, mm-hmm.
0: um,
2: and and English comics uh, like 2000 AD and so on, which is which is the scene that uh, Alan Moore and um, and Grant Morrison and all those people came out of, uh, and and uh, and underground comics. I had a father who was really interested in comics and he was always bringing home interesting things so as a kid he would introduce me to everything from Carl Barks to Edward Gorey to Robert Crump and so for me that's what comics really meant those were the comics that I really was excited about and although I would occasionally read a superhero comic it it was really just because there was nothing else to read and it was a very rare event when a superhero comic would um, (coughs) would would make an impact on me um and that was usually something to do with Jack Kirby, I guess. <laughs> 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 or else some of the weird old stuff. I mean, my dad also would... He, I remember him bringing me a reprint of some old 1940s Captain Marvel comics
1: mm-hmm.
2: um, by C.C. C. Beck. And that, they, I love those. They're
1: stuff. beautiful.
2: Yeah, they're lovely. And they're kind of... The thing is, they share a sensibility with a lot of the, um, the more uh, alternative and interesting comics I was reading. Much more they're much more quiet stories they're quite gentle um, and playful very very playful they
1: also have a really neat like uh, rounded art style to it
2: oh yeah beautiful to elegant um, elegant but unpretentious you know drawing style lovely like, stuff
1: I find more in common between C.C. C. Beck and say the line the clear line style than it yeah. would with C.C. C. Beck and the oh, D.C. Totally. Hill style
2: yeah, I, tell, I mean, I would associate CC Beck more with Herge, um and also with uh, with Charles Schultz than with uh, someone like Joe Kubert or um, or any of the people who I think came to dominate the history mm-hmm. of American commercial comics as that history emerged out of fandom. Um, and by history, I don't uh, by history what I mean is the story that we tell about about those comics. So I feel as though uh, during the uh, I, particularly the seventies, maybe, and the eighties, there, there emerged a, a whole body of writing about comics yeah. in America, which was was the rise of serious comics historiography. But that kind of emerged out of fandom, and the people who were writing it, you know, I guess they they fell in love with comics as as thirteen year old boys, and retained some of that fanish enthusiasm. And what what 13-year-old boys really love is kind of dynamism and energy and, and,
1: uh, kinetic.
2: Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and so I think, so that history came to be written as one in which the really key, the key figures were people like Joe Cuba, mm-hmm. um, <coughs> who, who injected their line work with this incredible dynamism and, um, and made the pages feel very really energetic and free and, and, as you say, kinetic, Yeah, you know. And I, uh, and, I think there were, there were a lot of forgotten little byways of comics in America, um, which were, were really just not even noticed by the people writing those histories. And those are slowly being rediscovered
0: mm-hmm.
2: uh, now, I think. Um, and, you know, there are things like the romance comics. And, um, and I don't mean the Jack Kirby <laughs> romance comics, no. but still had that incredible, can you?
1: Like I mean, uh, Alex Toth's work.
2: Yeah, yeah, but even even Toth has a real energy mm-hmm. to him. I guess I'm thinking more like in the in the late 70s and early 80s when I was starting to read things like the Comics Journal. Um, you would almost never see uh, things like the the Kurt Swan or
0: oh, Wayne okay. Boring yeah.
2: Superman comics or Supergirl stories. You'd never see those mentioned uh, with a with a rush of Fanish enthusiasm they'd always be mentioned as this uh,
1: Old slightly
2: embarrassing thing that we're trying to get away from which is inter-
1: um, because interesting because you have folks like Alan Moore's uh, whatever i the man of tomorrow you're know, yeah. very influenced by that and also the story that Grant Morrison just did with Superman the all-star yep. Superman which is all heavily influenced by that
2: yeah well I think all that stuff has, has there's always been people that, that were uh, retaining an interest in in that work, but but I feel as though uh, the dominant narrative that we had for a while um, is is breaking up, and or has broken up, and uh, and there are lots of I mean things like the the rediscovery of uh, of Fletcher Hanks and so mm-hmm. on, um, those really awkward, uh, clumsy, clumsily drawn comics, of which there were so many in the 30s and 40s. Early fifties, uh, that that awkwardness in itself is appealing to me. I actually am really drawn to old comics that, you know, it, they have some of the same qualities of, of outsider art without all the um, without all the bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> the art, yeah, the Fine arts. There's no pretension. Around. Yeah, I'm sure that's getting wrapped around those things now. Now they'd be rediscovered. and
1: well, with, with Fletcher Hanks, the one of the, the fascinating things a lot of folks are really latching on to is that he, for the time he was working in, he was a rare example of an artist doing all the parts to the comic himself, the writing, yeah. the drawing, yeah. um, the pen, the penciling and the inking, as all as one, and it's a rare example of a nature at that time, I guess. And, yeah. and creating creating his own vision, and his comics all have that same vision as ridiculous and uh, kind of hateful as that vision is
2: yeah and it's driven I mean I think I'm, I, one of the things that appeals to me is the fact that it's it's driven by this kind of strange intensity yeah <laughs> it's uh, it's great stuff but I'm also you know I, I like uh, I like odd little um, kids comics and so I mean there's, there's always been people holding carrying the flame for things like Little Lulu
1: I Uh, just had a big uh, show all about John Stanley last week
2: (laughs) Great, great I mean all that stuff is really being um, built back into the history As central, crucial parts of it And I I think what what, I guess for me it's partly a reaction Against uh, that incredible kind of obsession with, uh, With the dynamic That I feel dominates American superhero comics these days and has done for a few decades mm-hmm. and i found that very difficult when i was writing at dc i would write a scene in which two characters would be sitting at a table talking and they were having an argument but it, but they didn't they didn't have the argument by shouting at each other uh, the way i wrote it they were sitting there quietly talking and there were moments of silence and there were things they bit back that they didn't say and I wanted to have this emotional intensity kind of boiling below the surface, and I get the artwork back, and um, and you know the, the characters would be leaping out of their chairs and <laughs> shouting and <laughs> waving their arms around. I thought, well, of course they are because these guys are, are trained to and are expected to make the page dynamic at all times. I mean, there's it, this enormous. Uh, it's and, and this powerful incentive to just keep things always feeling kind of dynamic and interesting and I'm always trying to tone everything down I mean in my own stories too there, there's an awful lot of quiet and stillness
1: it's quite amusing because like with Hicksville this is kind of what you described would happen it's like you're writing yeah. your own future
2: <laughs> I know well that's the ironic thing is that um I mean I think I say in the introduction I should have listened to Sam um because there's a moment in Hicksville where the character Sam Zabel, who is frequently, if not entirely, but he's frequently used by me as a kind of alter ego or avatar that I put into situations to explore from my own perspective. Um, yeah, Sam Zabel is put in this position where he he he's offered uh, what I then kind of took up. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he turns it down. He dodges the bullet that I uh, that I took, um, and. As, a, as an indication of how foolish I am as a human being, I I, um, I took that bullet after having written a story about why you should dodge it. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. I, all I can say is that I have a weak character. <laughs>
1: oh, poor! I don't but know. But I
2: learned. I mean, again, I, you know, I have friends for whom they they would catch that bullet in midair and turn it and, and make great stories out of it. And I, the whole experience has enormously increased my respect for people like Ed and mm-hmm. uh, and Alan Moore and so on who can. You can go into that that commercial comics environment and produce extraordinary stories that turn the whole thing on its head.
1: But I, th- I think also part of that speaks to what they were raised on, too. And, I mean, Ed definitely raised on superhero comics. I mean,
2: yeah. Pacific Northwest. Mors-
1: yeah, I mean, you know, he's from Seattle, I'm in Vancouver. Y- yeah, you can kind of get the atmosphere. Um, yeah. And then Alan Moore is just Alan Moore. I mean, well,
2: he's kind of a so. unique phenomenon yeah. that. <laughs> do not any any schemer at all. He, he's um, on another plane. That's right. Many other planes. I'm sure. <laughs> um, the other, yeah. I mean, as you say, the thing is that I didn't grow up on that stuff, and it meant that when I found myself in the position of writing uh, writing Batgirl, um, or even of writing a Vertigo comic, I mean, I I had never been a reader of Vertigo. I had read Alan Moore's Swamp Thing obsessively when that was coming out. Um, and dipped into a couple of the spin-offs. You know, I read a few Hellblazers in the early days, but that was all actually pre-Vertigo. Mm-hmm. And and once it was Vertigo, there was very little of it that I ever read. And the stuff I did read really turned me off. So um, so when I found myself in that position, I didn't already have a kind of storehouse in my head of oh yeah, this is how I would write that. You know? And um, I I mean I've got friends who just their, their lifelong fantasy would be to write a Batman comic. And they've already written a thousand Batman comics in their head, so you give them the chance and they're just gonna go wham <laughs> 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 pour these things out and it'll be fantastic and it'll be innovative. Um, but I, I hadn't really thought about it. So uh so when I was in that situation I I I felt like sure I can do that. You know, I, I know that I've written a lot of stories that I like. Um, what I didn't realise is I'd never written a story like that that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I really was a bit at sea so it's really just I mean it was just my own uh, unfamiliarity with it partly but I think I learned something important about myself which is that that um, I'm just not that kind of writer and uh, I maybe one day I'll sit down and write it. I have, I, mean, I have written superhero stories for myself but they're very different very different to that kind of thing and they're very quiet and they're often about there's no fighting at all <laughs> 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 I, the fighting I just I find fighting so boring it's well the so, f- funny thing is like what is interesting about it what, God, what
1: how, how does this reflect real life well yeah, I mean it I, is escapism but I mean
2: well it is but it's um but it's also kind of not I mean when i when I try and think about what it was that made me feel queasy about it after a few years and for me the the um and I just I want to keep saying that the people I worked with at d c were great <laughs> they were really nice people and um and some of them do great comics so it's not it's it's no reflection on them. Um, it was really just me being at sea in in that environment but there are some things about the conventions of superhero comics at the moment that I find repulsive mm-hmm. and when that really was clearest was when I worked on the one crossover event that I was involved in, which was called War Games,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and um, I remember we had the, this meeting in New York, and we were there was the various editors and writers getting together to talk about what this crossover would involve. And the key thing that was kind of expected of this crossover was that was there was a character called Spoiler, and the, the, you know number one on the agenda of what we had to achieve with the crossover was we had to kill Spoiler. Now Spoiler is like this this teenage girl who had been going out with Robin for the while
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, she got pregnant as an unwed teenager um, she was just a, a, a nice, well-meaning kid basically, and I felt like you know, this poor girl <laughs> it was like being in a mafia hit, hit meeting, it was like, so how are we going to take her down You know. <laughs> and in the end in the end, the way she was taken down is over the course of about an issue and a half of this whole crossover, she was slowly tortured to death um, in graphic detail. And uh, you know, after a while, it just felt like, wh- "What is this? <laughs> what yeah. are we involved with here?" And it, it's it's all. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion recently online about this. Um, oh God, what is it called? Cry for Justice.
1: Oh, the thing that James Robinson did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, I and haven't the, read it. And
2: the term it. that the best description of it I've seen is tragedy porn.
1: Yeah, it's it. I've it's a term that gets used for a lot of stuff and yeah, yeah, tra- tra- yeah tragedy well, porn the tragedy
2: porn that you see on the news which is one thing but what I what I thought was lovely about the description of of, of this as tragedy porn is that it's it's an ersatz kind of faked kind of tragedy mm-hmm. it's not real tragedy at all it's just the most obvious cheap easy ways to flash a big sign saying oh this is tragedy yeah in order to get a kind of story beat. It's to try and inject a little bit of drama into an otherwise very flaccid genre. Um, And it's cheap. And it's cheap and it's nasty. And the thing that got me the most disturbed about it all was the gradual realisation that underlying all these Gotham City stories was a vision of the world as an urban jungle full of predators and prey. And the predators who were mostly, in spite of the best efforts of the editors and writers, I have to say, I mean, none of us approved of it, but even so, the predators generally ended up being, you know, black or Hispanics and on drugs. And they preyed on innocent citizens, particularly young women. And in that environment, the only way to defend the weak and the innocent... to break the law as the bad guys mm-hmm. and that's that's where Batman comes in so Batman wages a war on crime
1: with crime and,
2: and the way he does it is by finding the little guys you know, the, the petty criminals who work for the penguin and he basically tortures them until they'll spill the beans and then he goes after the penguin so he's basically got one rule which is he won't kill, well has two rules, the other one is he won't use a gun, but apart from that he'll do anything absolutely anything in his war on
1: crime. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's in part reflective of kind of American norms. I'm saying this as a Canadian. Yeah, totally. Um, you know, as an outsider perspective, I went down to uh, Seattle last weekend for a comic convention, and yeah. uh, I don't have cable up here, so I don't watch news, and I don't watch just flip through the channels, and I was just flipping through the channels of the hotel, and it was all... Either like uh, really saccharine uh, or saccharine, um, like reality shows and dance competitions, or super hyper um, offensive neoconservative news. Right. You know, and it's and then just seeing young people with Obama's Hitler signs and stuff. It's not worth me getting into here, but. (laughs) You know yeah. it's you, you kind of <laughs> but I know
2: what you mean and the thing is that it does feel relevant when when I started really thinking through what these comics said about the world because I feel as though that vision of the world as a scary dark place full of nasty bad people and the way to the way to protect us from the nasty bad people is we need to be really tough you know? and, and I think that's how we get into this quagmire where uh, in a lot of popular entertainment now it's very hard to distinguish the good guys from the bad guys. Mm-hmm because they both do terrible, terrible things. The distinction is purely that the good guys are on the right side and, um, and they're ostensibly doing it to defend all the innocent people, whereas the bad guys are doing it to prey on the innocent people. But really the distinction's pretty fine. And when I was writing Batgirl was really at the... Uh, it, it was when the war in Iraq was feeling particularly... Well, the whole war on terror was kind of feeling like it was at its peak. And I remember getting an issue of Batgirl back from the printers and it had a recruiting ad for the U.S. Army on the back cover.
1: Yeah.
2: And it all just kind of fell into place. It all felt like, you know, this is, this is really just part of the same... It's like we're on message here.
1: It's a, it's a machine. I mean,
2: we, were to, we were all trying to tell stories that were kind of yeah. you know, bad American government and all the rest of it, but, but we were doing it within, within a, a set of conventions that still conveyed the world according to a particular set of kind of moral laws.
3: If I want you It's purely that there's nothing else No one in this world I know Like you If I lost you I would be as if Bereft of every single thing That makes us more than two When I touch you It means so much to me There is a sensual mystery To every move And when I'm inside you I know it is the only place To be completely free Completely true So you can trust me You can open every window Every door And let the light come flooding in Let all the swollen rivers roar But there is more of what love inside of me then even I can comprehend there is no end my only friend if I hurt you it's only that I'm trying to get deeper into everything you are
2: When I
3: enrage you Well, I know that you will understand How much we learn from venturing too far So you can trust me, you can open Every window, every door And let the light come flooding in Let all the swollen rivers roar For there is more of what you love Inside of me than even I can comprehend There is no end My own strong and free, to say what's truly on your mind. It's never easy to unload the very essence of the code. that holds the key to your design. Just know I love you Yes, I think I know exactly What that poor deluded Cliché truly means I love you It must be true I finally put it in a song Instead of singing in my dreams,
1: I kind of I want to quickly shift gears here.
2: Yeah, let's stop talking
1: about that enough. <laughs> we well, I want to I, I want to take something from what you just said and put it in a different mm. context because you're talking about world vision. And so how does Hicksville reflect your world vision?
2: Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, before
1: you're talking about being um, kind of the edge of culture and the edge of the world, and Hicksville, it is this um, community of that culture um, on the edge of the edge of the world.
2: Yeah. I think Hicksville for me was was never me sitting down and trying to present any anything. I was never trying to present a view of the world or present um, an argument about comics or anything. It, it was me going on a little journey of my own. And at first, when I started Hicksville, I really had no idea where I was going at all. I, it was as simple as the fact that I felt like doing a fairly loose story that I hadn't planned, and I wanted to, I wanted to spend time on the beach. Um, so I just I just sent a character off on a little journey across a remote part of New Zealand heading for the beach. <laughs> so I could do a whole lot of, I just wanted to draw people on the beach. I mean, it's a big part of New Zealand, and I was, I was missing it. Um, and uh, but, but I also, you know, I guess I also felt like I wanted to explore um, comics. I must have felt like that, because I injected that into the story from the beginning. Um, but as I kind of went on that journey, I, I, um, I found myself going on lots of little digressions and exploring lots of little pockets of my brain. And um, I was starting to ask myself questions, I suppose. And, and one of them was, was, uh, was what does it mean to be so marginal? Um, and I don't know that I ever really quite answered that myself but I think when I finished it I found myself uh, realizing that the the world isn't a circle that has a center the world is a sphere and spheres the surface of a sphere doesn't have anywhere on it that's that's the center Mm -hmm. so you can you can be absolutely anywhere on that sphere on the surface of that sphere and look out and as far as you're concerned you're at the center So in a way, my answer to the question I'd asked myself was to position myself right where I was, which was really on the edge of everywhere, Um, but say, I don't care, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is the center of the world, comics and New Zealand, um, and the kind of marginal places of the world, this is my center, and now I'm going to look out at the world and see how it looks, and I guess in a way, that's what I was doing the whole time, is that I I put myself in that position and then just looked out at the world. But I never know what I'm doing with those stories until I've finished. And usually don't after that. <laughs> <laughs> it's really just a matter of of finding finding images and ideas and situations that really resonate with me on a whole lot of levels. And then just exploring them as deeply as I can. In the hope that it that by the end of that process I've produced something that's interesting to me and interesting to other people. And can serve as it, it can serve as a, um, an environment in which the reader can come and go on their own journey as well. Uh, I guess I'm really interested in the idea of art as instead of building a road from A to B and I'm trying to take the reader down this path and present them with something I've thought of at the end. Instead of that, I'm trying to build a playground that they can come and play, play on and, um, and in the process of playing both the reader and myself you know we can we can start to learn things about the world and ourselves I guess and that we're not learning things that I'm telling them either we're just learning things that the world presents to us while we're on that journey I don't know if it makes any sense at all <laughs> well, it,
1: it, it is and I, I kind of I don't know if this question really gonna link very well but one thing I've noticed following your Twitter and things like that is your interest in kind of Intellectual property rights, and i yeah. and I guess the way I'm going to link this, and it, I'm probably not going to make sense, is
2: <laughs> the
1: segue of the day. This, yep. Yeah, the, the the awkward segue, uh, the non sequitur segue. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how i kind of we're talking about the the use of the art. How do you feel is art as a public responsibility slash public? Property as a creator. I oh know that that was a train yeah, wreck question.
2: I, no, I think <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I I've sort of come to the my interest in the whole intellectual property thing has been a gradual process over the last few years, um, and it's but it's always it's always something that's been there in the background simply because I've read a lot of comics history and anyone who knows anything about the history of comics and the US at least knows that intellectual property rights are a big part of the story Um, there's the story of Siegel and Schuster creating Superman and then getting uh, completely exploited by national periodicals who became DC Um, and there's so many stories like that in the history of comics or the story of Captain Marvel uh, which was the most popular superhero comic by the end of the 1940s and it deserved to be it was enormously entertaining but was then basically killed off when the, when National Periodicals sued Fawcett for copyright infringement simply because they were doing a superhero. Mm-hmm. Essentially is what it came down to. And they, they killed Captain Marvel in the courts that way. So you know, the history of comics is partly a history of copyright being used not to protect artists but to exploit them. Copyright being used by corporations to exploit creators and artists. So I've always been aware of that most of my life that meant that I, I, I felt as though as a cartoonist you should work very hard to avoid giving away your copyright and you should zealously guard them and protect them. But in the last several years I've I guess that has shifted so that I now feel as though the whole model of copyright and intellectual property is is the wrong model for me. It, that copyright takes our involvement with the work that we create. It takes that involvement and it turns it into a property right. And the problem with a property right is that you can sell it or it can be stolen by by sort of legal shenanigans. And then someone else owns it. And that's happened again and again and again. Um, And the other property is that it's not an accurate description of the engagement the whole society has with the piece of work either. Mm -hmm. Um, And the last 10 years as the internet has has really exploded and taken over um, we've, we've seen that the technology as it's done time and time again in the past is changing the relationship we have with the production and distribution of art and culture and one thing it's done for me is that it's really clarified that we're all in this together when it comes to art and culture I might make Hicksville you know I can feel as though I made Hexel all by myself. It took me six years, and I had a day job, and I was kind of drawing it in my spare time, and, um, and it was a lot of hard work. But I know damn well, when I'm honest with myself, that the process of creating Hicksil was was actually a very communal one um, on a very deep level, that I was drawing on all kinds of things that were feeding into me from the outside culture, from the history of comics, from comics I was reading, uh, and also from... You know things my friends would say and and so on and there's a very real a very real sense in which creating a story or a piece of art for me feels like receiving a gift from the world and the culture around me um and i feel when i create something that feels good um it re- i feel grateful. You know, I feel really grateful. I'm, I, I'm not one of those people who says, oh, you, know, "You know, God spoke to me." <laughs> you know, I'm just channeling. It's not like that because I know I put a hell of a lot into it. <laughs> but I'm not the only person that does make it. And um, and Hexel—that's very strongly the case. And I mentioned in the introduction. There's a few key images and a few key moments in Hexel that clearly I received from elsewhere. The lighthouse running mm-hmm. through the whole book. Um, I didn't realize until relatively recently that that clearly came from Moomin Papa at Sea, the Tovians and Children's novel. Yeah. Um which which is a book that I would read over and over again as a child but even as an adult. Uh, and there's, there's other images in there that come from the Moomins. Uh, there are there are images that come from dreams I had. Uh, I always used to dream, and I still sometimes do dream, about finding a second-hand bookshop somewhere and walking in, and there's boxes and boxes of comics I've never seen before. You know, there might be a stack of Tintin books that, that were never published, and here they are, you know, <laughs> <laughs> real ones by Herge, and, um, and things like that. And, and those dreams really haunt me, and all of those things fed into Hicksville. And the moment that I came up with the central image that really is the defining image of the book which I won't say because it's a bit of a spoiler. <laughs> but that image really came to me one night, one morning, when I was lying in bed, and um, out of nowhere, it just felt like wham. You know, it just blossomed. So it feels enormously dishonest if I then turn around and say I own this whole thing, lock, stock, and barrel. You know, it's to me, it's it's a it's analogous to saying that the earth, the the water in the earth, and the the soil and the plants and the seeds and the minerals, that just because I paid some money and bought this patch of land here, that now belongs to me and I can then exploit it in whatever way I like, regardless of the consequences to anyone else. That's enormously dishonest too. And I think I mean we have so many indigenous cultures, Native American cultures, Native Canadian cultures, and in New Zealand, the Maori and so on who kind of learned that early on and they realized that if they um, when they have it they have a different way of looking at those natural resources they see it as something that's a that is part of their involvement with the earth and they need to respect that relationship the and they need to treat treat it with respect now that's how I feel about art as well That that I need to respect the natural environment of art and stories that I am engaged with when I construct a comic. Um, I need to respect other people's relationship with it, and I need to respect other people's relationship with the work that I produce. Now, if I claim the work I've produced as my owned property, and then try and charge people money to look at it or engage with it, then it's a really awkward and uncomfortable thing. And mm. I've always felt that. I'm, I'm sure a lot of writers and artists have a very ambivalent relationship with with marketing and selling and commercializing their work. It's a very difficult,
1: well, even complicated f- thing. Even for myself, I have a really hard time even having advertising on the website for the mm. radio show, and I just will never charge money for folks to listen to the show. It just doesn't make sense to me. It's like, you know, you're not getting paid to do this interview with me. Why should I make money off yeah. of Taking your information, you know.
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like it's a difficult, it's a difficult one because we live in a, we live in a world which is is structured along capital lines. So yeah. we, you know, we need to make a living. Um, but I think <laughs> that we've <laughs> we've we've uh, we've fallen into the trap of listening to what um, the publishers and the and the. Record companies and so on have told us, which is that the way for an artist to make a living, is to um, is to treat our work as our product that we will sell. Well, and well, and, and I think so. I think um, the re- the internet, of course, has really changed the whole game because it's now effectively uh, free to distribute art. So it. doesn't you know it virtually costs nothing really to distribute music comics books even a film um, over the internet and we've seen that with file sharing and this is like an extraordinary revolution to me it's it's up there with the invention of printing it's it's like wow (laughs) this is all our dreams could come true and what's stopping us really making use of that and creating this utopia is our fear of losing control of the ability to exploit the work commercially
1: I just I want to jump on on that with just kind of my own thought while you're talking is that the notion of intellectual property in some ways came with the printing press, right?
2: Well, it kind of did. I mean, the idea of intellectual property as such really only dates back a hundred years, um, and but the idea of copyright, uh, which would go back a, a little longer, really it was the 18th century when. Copyright was first, about 18th, 17th. Anyway, under Queen Anne. <laughs> My history's not as good as I thought it was. I should know um,
1: this, I'm a history major.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but it it, uh, it, it, those are all relatively recent concepts. Um, and part of the problem we've got, I think, is that in the Middle Ages, and, and for most of our history, the really key images and characters and stories and songs and so on that dominated the culture... They weren't actually anyone's commercial property. Uh, so there were Bible stories, there were folk stories, mm-hmm. folk songs and so on. Those things just just were passed around and were shared by everyone and artists were free to use them. They're not entirely free to use them. I mean, if it was religious imagery, you could get in big trouble if you presented <laughs> it wrongly in your painting. Um, but you certainly didn't have to pay to use it and you didn't need the permission of someone to no. use it. Uh, and those concepts are very modern. That's a very new thing, and the result of it is that we've we've lost what's called that kind of um, Creative Commons, that public common, commonly owned uh, culture of images and characters. There's a very a very important New Zealand novelist called Nigel Cox, and he he wrote a novel some years ago called um, Elvis, sorry, Tar- Tarzan Presley, and it was a, a really interesting novel which was really looking like it was going to be his big breakthrough novel internationally um, really interesting, it wove together autobiographical elements and also the story of Tarzan growing up in the jungle and the story of Elvis Presley and his rise to fame and decline and so on um, now that novel was effectively killed by the uh, the Edgar Rice Burroughs I, 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 I hesitate even to say a state. I mean it's kind of a corporation now Mm-hmm. That manages the borough's properties, but I mean um, ha- and they 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 threatened to sue and killed the novel, and that's it. So we're not even kind of free to use those shared iconographic things anymore in in our culture. But sorry, I keep interrupting.
1: No, no, no. no. <laughs> I was, yeah, no, it's it's fine.
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess what I, I guess what it comes down to is that I've I've gone from being um, someone who was interested in intellectual property as a bit of a minefield that we had to negotiate as artists to increasingly feeling as though the whole model of intellectual property isn't isn't just a minefield we have to negotiate it's actually a huge barbed wire fence that's been shoved through our entire culture and primarily by the corporations that exploit artists rather than by artists themselves and it's now become it's got to the point now where the whole edifice of intellectual property I think needs to be at the very least deeply rethought and possibly thrown out and replaced with something else and the closest thing that I've found that that feels that, that matches more how I feel about my art and my interaction with other people's art is the creative commons mm-hmm. model
1: like the Cory Doctorow's
2: yeah, yeah, exactly it's what Cory Doctorow uses and it's what uh, Lawrence Lessig is involved with and Michael Geist in Canada. Um,
1: is this part yeah. of the decision to, to post so much on your website as far yes, as web exactly. comics go?
2: Yeah, it's exactly why. It's one of the reasons that I, um, I've shifted from serializing my stories on paper in little comics pamphlets. Also, the economics of that are kind of you know, fading away.
1: Yeah, I don't think Jonathan Corley does any more serialized yeah. comics anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean, I shifted from that to putting them online, but, so I'm, I'm, the new work I'm doing, uh, a story called The American Dream, which is kind of my very personal, uh, feelings about America, about the United States and, and where it's got itself, uh, politically and culturally. Um, and also The Magic Pen, which I'm serializing, which is a much more relaxed <laughs> story about being a cartoonist um, those two things I'm serializing using a Creative Commons license online so it's it's what they call attribution non-commercial and what it means in practice is I'm happy for anyone to reproduce or copy them and even to do derivative works so long as they're non-commercial mm-hmm. and so long as they give credit to me um, and if they fulfill those two requirements I have no problem with it and I've granted that license to everyone so, you know, if you, want to put, if you want to take an image and put it on a T-shirt to give to your girlfriend, go for it. And if you, want to, if you want to put it on your blog, then that's all great. Just make sure you put a link to me. <laughs> and as soon as you start selling those T-shirts, you need to get my permission first. Um, so that's essentially what it comes down to. But to me, that, as I say, that reflects much more that, that kind of the reciprocity of the gift relationship that I feel I have with art. You know, I receive a lot from art in the process of making it and then I feel like I need to give something back as well.
1: So is Hicksville a world people can play in?
2: Totally. In fact, I you know way back in um, in the 90s when I was first doing Hicksville in, in my comic book Pickle, uh, I used to say to cartoonist friends, look, feel free to do stories about Hicksville. Um, and a few people have. One day I want to kind of put them all together and, um, and publish some of them. Uh, they're just stories that that make use of the Hicksville world one way or another um, and it's lovely I, I get such a kick out of it, it it's it,
1: it's something that I, I see a lot of folks within comics have like a genuine affection for the whole concept of Hicksville
2: yeah I guess I mean it, I guess it's not surprising that comics people um, really really seemed to uh, to love Hicksville because it's about comics and it's about why we love them Um, but also about how difficult that love can be (laughs) I I open it I open it with um, with a a quote from Jack Kirby which which may be apocryphal but I did get it from a written source in which he said comics will break your heart Um, apparently Charles Schultz said something very similar too and I love that quote because to me it says everything I mean they will break your heart you'll fall madly in love with them Mm -hmm. Um, but they'll also you know they will break your heart there's there's things comi- things about comics that are uh, that make it a very hard a hard art form to be in love with.
1: I um, kind of s- describe it to friends who are having trouble working on books. Just it's she's hmm. a mean beast.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean it's not I guess it's not only comics. I, I know uh, I know some musicians who I've mm-hmm. spoken I met mean, about three musicians who as soon as it became um their main focus, you know, they became session musicians, or they were in a band that had a CD or something. They would go through a patch where they couldn't listen to music anymore, and they couldn't they couldn't walk into CD stores. And, uh, and I've met writers who have that; they just can't read novels anymore. Um,
1: and I know cartoonists that can't read comics. Well, exactly,
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So it's the, I think it's it's to do with the very intense, intense relationship we have with our art enormously rewarding and fulfilling but at times it's <laughs> it's like any love <laughs> affair it can, be, um, it can be painful
1: too. it can leave you scorned <laughs> I have to uh, bring us to a close Dylan um someone's eyeing me to wanting to use the uh, studio I'm recording in right now
2: <laughs> well it's been lovely talking it's,
1: it's been really great and I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me um I guess for the future for folks to look forward to we've got the, the Hicksville collection which just came out and any chance we'll be seeing or any idea when any of the other stuff will be collected or just for now folks can go to the website well
2: I, I um, they, can, they can look at it now and see as far as I've got on the news stories on my current website which is hicksvillecomics.com um, and that's where I'm serializing things and then I'm hoping I'm hoping to have a new book finished this year uh, and possibly a collection of my short comics as well. Um, so that's the hope. And in um, in October, I'm coming to Toronto as well for uh, for the International Festival of Authors.
1: Oh, nice! Um,
2: and that's really exciting. I've just heard about that. That's in. Uh, I hope I'm not jumping the gun by mentioning that publicly. <laughs> 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 I don't know if they've announced it yet.
1: Well, um, if uh, you can find out from Peggy if. Yeah, <laughs> That's not. You know, I could just do Yeah,
2: <laughs> I may th- be coming to Toronto sometime.
1: <laughs> well, I hope they can get you into Vancouver's uh, Writers Festival. Yeah, well, I'd love time. to.
2: Uh, I'd love to travel around, I and mean, uh, I love visiting Canada. Um, I, I have. My mother grew up in uh, Buffalo, just over the just over the border.
1: Yeah, yeah, right by Toronto. Um,
2: yeah, so I've I've spent a, a bit of time around um, Northern New York State, but also. You know, all my publishers have been Canadians. So yeah,
1: wise choices.
2: And, yeah, well, Canada, <laughs> Canada just kind of you know reminds me a little bit of New Zealand. It's like uh, you've got some of it's it's um.
1: We're both in our re- colonial recovery.
2: That's right, <laughs> and there's a slightly kind of chilled out aspect.
1: Well, thank it's you so much, comment.
2: Dylan. Yeah, thank you.